Hello everyone and welcome to the May 29 edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fulce, an attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Offices. Thank you for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. In an important 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court held that class or collective action waivers, particularly in wage-hour cases and contained in arbitration agreements between employers and employees, are valid and enforceable. The court's decision in Epic Systems Corporation v. Lewis could affect some 25 million employment contracts. Companies can now use arbitration clauses in employment contracts to prohibit workers from banding together to file class action lawsuits over workplace issues. The vote was 5-4 to four with the court's more conservative justices in the majority. In each of these cases, an employer and employee entered into a contract providing for individualized arbitration proceedings to resolve employment disputes. Each employee nonetheless sought to litigate Fair Labor Standards Act and related state law claims through class actions in federal court. Although the Federal Arbitration Act generally requires courts to enforce arbitration agreements as written, the employees argued that its savings clause removed this obligation if an arbitration agreement violated some other federal law. They claim the agreements in these cases violated the National Labor Relations Act. The employers countered that the Arbitration Act protects agreements requiring arbitration from judicial interference and that neither the Savings Clause nor the National Labor Relations Act demands a different conclusion. Until recently, courts as well as the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel agreed that such arbitration agreements are enforceable. But in 2012, the board ruled that the NLRA effectively nullifies the Arbitration Act in cases like these, and since then, other courts have either agreed with or deferred to the NLRB's position. The U.S. Supreme Court stepped into the dispute and sided with the employers. The court ruled that the Arbitration Act provides that arbitration agreements providing for individualized proceedings must be enforced and neither the Arbitration Act's Savings Clause nor the National Labor Relations Act suggests otherwise. Writing for the majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch said the court's conclusion was dictated by a federal law favoring arbitration and the court's precedents. He claimed that otherwise the virtues Congress originally saw in arbitration, its speed and simplicity and inexpensiveness, would be shorn away and arbitration would wind up looking like the litigation it was meant to displace. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg called the majority opinion egregiously wrong. She said the upshot of the decision will be a huge under-enforcement of federal and state statutes designed to advance the well-being of vulnerable workers. This decision should cause employers to reevaluate their employment relationships with employees 
and consider enacting wide-ranging arbitration agreements that include class action and collective action waivers. Two years ago, the Court of Appeal opened the Pandora's box of potential litigation against utilization review physicians in the published case of Kirk King v. Comp Partners Incorporated. But the California Supreme Court granted a petition to review the case, and the oral argument in the case was heard at the end of this May. Kirk King suffered anxiety and depression due to chronic back pain resulting from the back injury he suffered at work in 2008. In 2011, he was prescribed an anti-anxiety medication known as clonopin. The requested renewal of his medication was sent to UR and Naresh Sharma, MD, the anesthesiologist who conducted the utilization review, determined the drug was unnecessary and decertified it. As a result, Mr. Kirk was required to immediately cease taking the clonopin. Typically, a person withdraws from clonopin gradually by slowly reducing the dosage. But due to the sudden cessation of clonopin, Mr. King suffered four seizures resulting in additional physical injuries. Later, another request for clonopin was made by the PTP, and this time Dr. Ali, a psychiatrist, conducted a second utilization review and also determined that clonopin was medically unnecessary. Neither doctors Sharma nor Ali examined Mr. Kirk in person, and neither warned Kirk of the dangers of an abrupt withdrawal from clonopin. Both doctors were employees of Comp Partners, a workers' compensation utilization review company. King then sued Comp Partners Incorporated and Dr. Sharma for negligence, and his wife also sued for loss of consortium. But the trial court sustained the defendant's demur without leave to amend. The Court of Appeal sustained the demur, but reversed the denial of leave to amend, affording King a second chance to plead his case around the Labor Code restrictions. Comp partners contended the Labor Code set forth a procedure for objecting to a utilization review decision, and that procedure preempted the King's civil complaint. But the Kings contended that the trial court erred in sustaining the demur because their causes of action are not preempted by the Workers' Compensation Act. The Court of Appeal concluded that the trial court should have granted the Kings leave to amend because it is possible that, when more details are provided, they could support a conclusion that under the circumstances, the scope of Dr. Sharma's duty included some form of warning Kirk of or protecting Kirk from the risk of seizures. The King case will be the workers' compensation high-profile case now until resolved by the California Supreme Court. The list of amicus parties already includes many stakeholder organizations, such as the California Workers' Compensation Institute, the California Chamber of Commerce, the California Applicants' Attorneys Association, and much more. Bupinder Kulkat hired J.K. 
D Construction as the framing contractor for the construction of his large house in Live Oak, California. The contract provided that JKD was responsible for compliance with all Cal OSHA requirements for safety and fall protection. The contract also required JKD to carry current workers' compensation and liability insurance. Amador Gudino was an employee of JKD and worked on the framing of CalCat's house. In October 2012, he fell to his death while working on a second-story balcony. The Cal OSHA investigation determined the framing work was conducted without adequate fall protection. Godino's survivors and heirs, his wife and three children, received workers' compensation benefits for his injury. The heirs alleged entitlement to increased benefits due to JKD's serious and willful misconduct, and that matter was resolved by a compromise and release. But the heirs also brought a civil suit against CalCat, the property owner, and others for negligence. The owner, Mr. CalCat, moved for summary judgment contending the workers' compensation was the heirs' exclusive remedy and that under the Privet Doctrine he had no liability as the hirer of an independent contractor. The heirs argued that a hirer of an independent contractor was liable for furnishing unsafe or defective equipment, and that was what happened here. They claimed that CalCat provided a forklift that he knew had defective brakes. But the trial court granted the motion for summary judgment, finding no evidence that the forklift contributed to the accident and entered judgment for CalCat, the property owner. The judgment was just affirmed by the Court of Appeal in the unpublished case of Gedino v. Calcat. After review of the law and evidence, the Court of Appeal ruled that the heirs failed to raise a triable issue of fact to bring this case within an exception to the limits on liability explained by the Privet Doctrine. And now our crime report. Last February, Anthem Blue Cross sent a letter to Sonoma West Medical Center and Palm Drive Healthcare District demanding repayment and threatening legal action. According to Anthem, the hospital conspired with several third parties to fabricate or misrepresent claims for toxicology testing services that were improperly billed to Anthem. Anthem claimed the fraudulent billing began after the hospital partnered with Dural Capital Holdings, a Florida company, and Dural's testing laboratory, Reliance Laboratory Testing. The cash-strapped hospital in California agreed to conduct toxicology testing for Dural in exchange for more than $2 million and denied that they did anything wrong. However, the hospital discontinued the practice nonetheless after receiving the Anthem threatening letter. The Palm Drive Healthcare District is now seeking bids for the purchase of its Sebastopol Hospital, a move brought on by ongoing financial struggles and debt. The executive director of the district said the need to sell the hospital became clear after the hospital's lucrative but controversial lab services were suspended. 
But the Sonoma West story may be just the tip of a large iceberg of fraud rings that infect rural hospitals. In March, CBS News investigated questionable billing at rural hospitals in Georgia and Florida. It found that some rural hospitals have become hugely profitable because insurance providers reimburse them at much higher rates than non-rural hospitals. These out-of-the-way hospitals have become gold mines for enterprising healthcare executives looking for a way to quietly increase revenue. Records show the money was being paid out for drug screens, toxicology tests on urine samples collected from all over the country. Some of the testing was conducted at Dural's lab in Sunrise, Florida, but everything was billed through Chastity Regional Hospital, a 49-bed hospital which has been operating for more than 40 years in rural North Georgia. This was because a rural hospital can bill at a higher rate than other facilities. Documents show that Dural's lab made $67 million in billing tests through another rural hospital in Graceville, Florida. A similar deal with Dural was made with Sonoma West Medical Center in Northern California. Last year, Dural bought two more rural hospitals in Georgia and Alabama. And in 2016, the Missouri State Opera, uh, Auditor began examining the finances of several rural hospitals in her state. One was Putnam County Memorial, a 15-bed hospital in Unionville, Missouri, struggling to keep its doors open. Her team discovered a management company called Hospital Partners had swooped in weeks before Putnam was about to close, promising to turn it around. They made deals with labs around the country to funnel billings for blood tests and drug screens through Putnam, which collects higher reimbursement rates as a rural hospital. Putnam kept about 15%. Most of the money was wired back to the labs and the management company. Essentially, the auditor explained that the hospital appeared to act as a shell company for these questionable lab billings. In a six-month period, the hospital funneled through about $92 million in revenues from lab testing. To put that into perspective, the previous year, their total revenues from all sources were a mere $7.5 million. A Riverside chiropractor was charged with 47 felony counts related to an insurance fraud and kickback scheme. 59-year-old Curtis Wayne Montgomery of Riverside has been charged with three counts of insurance fraud, 28 counts of receiving commission for referring clients, and 16 counts of money laundering. He was released on bail and given a court date for arraignment in July 2018. This March, Riverside County's DEA investigators learned that more than $300,000 in payments had been made from Montgomery to a company called Providence Scheduling. That's a company which was designed to field phone calls from injured workers and then funnel those people to doctors and chiropractors through California. The two men who owned and operated Providence Scheduling, Carlos Aguello and Furman Iglesias, have already entered guilty pleas to federal charges. Argello and Iglesias required medical providers 
to refer a certain number of patients to outside companies for medical equipment imaging and other treatments. However, the two men owned these outside companies and therefore were able to bill insurance companies for the services. If doctors and chiropractors failed to refer enough patients to these outside companies, the two men would stop or slow the number of patients they would refer to the medical providers, which then could incentivize the providers financially to refer patients for unnecessary or ineffective treatments. The case against Montgomery is a result of Operation Backlash, an extensive FBI-led undercover investigation that revealed a widespread workers' compensation kickback scheme. The operation was first announced in November 2015 when the initial round of federal indictments was handed down. San Diego chiropractor Stephen J. Rigler and San Diego workers' compensation attorney Sean O'Keefe previously pleaded guilty to federal charges. Last year, the U.S. Attorney's Office announced federal indictments against patient recruiters Furman Iglesias, Carlos Arguello, Miguel Morales, and four corporations. The corporations are Providence Scheduling, MedEx Solutions, Inc., Prime Holdings International, and Meridian Medical Resources, doing business as Meridian Rehab Care. The three federal defendants were accused of recruiting individuals to file workers' comp claims resulting from an on-the-job injury. Near the end of March 2017, Providence Scheduling entered into a plea agreement to plead guilty. The Ventura County District Attorney's Office reports that a Santa Paula man pleaded guilty to defrauding his workers' compensation carrier, Pacific Compensation Insurance. 46-year-old Jose Alviso Rodriguez pled guilty to one count of felony workers' compensation insurance fraud. Alviso Rodriguez was employed at Daily Landscaping in Ojai when he reported an on-the-job injury to his employer in July 2016. He was sent to a doctor who placed him off work on temporary total disability, which was paid for by Pacific Compensation Insurance. But in August 2016, Alviso Rodriguez began working for Coastal Farm Labor Service in Oxnard and did not tell his new employer that he was on disability. And he also failed to report to Daily Landscaping and Pacific Compensation that he was back at work full-time. Each disability check he received contained a warning in both Spanish and English, directing him to report any income, and that failure to do so could result in criminal prosecution. Alvaza Rodriguez will be sentenced on July 19 in Ventura Superior Court, and he faces a maximum sentence of up to five years in jail and a fine of $150,000. Hosea Morgan worked at San Quentin State Prison as a correctional officer and correctional counselor. He filed two claims with the State Compensation Insurance Fund for multiple disabling workplace injuries and was paid over $74,000 in workers' compensation benefits. Surveillance by investigators revealed that while on leave, he engaged in physical activities that were inconsistent with his claimed injuries, including basketball, 
lifting appliances, and long walks. His PTP said he would not have taken appellant off of work if he had known he was able to play basketball. And his PQME was shown the surveillance video at trial and said that Morgan had not disclosed his true physical condition and should have returned to work during the period he was placed on disability. Morgan's defense at his criminal trial was that his claims were legitimate and that although he engaged in the physical activities captured on the surveillance tapes, he was in pain when he did so. But a jury convicted him of five felony counts, and the conviction was just affirmed by the Court of Appeal in the unpublished case of People v. Hosea Morgan. Morgan argued on appeal that he suffered unfair prejudice during trial based upon the combined effect of two pieces of evidence. One was surveillance video that showed him walking down a pier kissing a woman who is not his wife. And the second was his unsuccessful attempt to recover workers' compensation benefits for erectile dysfunction. He argued that this evidence had little of any probative value and was clearly prejudicial. The prosecutor sought to introduce evidence that appellant walked about half a mile down the Vallejo Pier, which contradicted his statements to doctors that his injuries limited his ability to walk. And the woman in the tape was not identified, and the tape was redacted to edit out a prolonged embrace between Morgan and the woman who was not his wife. Morgan's attempt to obtain benefits for erectile dysfunction when it was in fact unrelated to his industrial injury tended to show that he was untruthful. Where fraud is charged, evidence of other frauds or fraudulent representations of like character committed by the same parties at or near the same time is admissible to prove intent. The Court of Appeal opinion concluded that there was no abuse of discretion by the trial court in his jury trial. And in regulatory news, this month, the California Supreme Court issued an order approving 69 new rules of professional conduct, which will go into effect for California attorneys on November 1. The current rules remain in effect until then. The court approved 27 amended rules as state bar committees submitted them and modified and authorized 42 more. The new rules for California's 250,000 attorneys covers 112 pages, and they are the first comprehensive changes to the rule book in 29 years. The California Rules of Professional Conduct are intended to regulate professional conduct of attorneys licensed by the state bar through discipline. They have been adopted by the Board of Trustees and approved by the California Supreme Court pursuant to statute to protect the public. The rules and any related standards adopted by the Board are binding on all members of the state bar. Conflict of interest rules are now broader under the new rules and less case-specific. For example, a new definition of what constitutes a legal matter covered by conflict disclosure and non-representation requirements is more expensive now than before. The changes are much more conforming and much more inclusive of how lawyers, lawyers nationally understand what conflicts of interests are. 
And the new rules have enhanced prohibitions on harassment, discrimination, and retaliation by lawyers, both in the workplace and in the practice of law. And they've been expanded. Currently, the rules bar lawyers from having sex with clients if the act is coerced or considered a form of payment for services rendered. But the new rules forbids lawyer-client sex unless there was a previous consensual, consensual relationship. Attorneys have about six months to become familiar with the rest of the 69 new rules. Ethics is a mandated continuing education topic, and this MCLE cycle will no doubt cover these new rules in great depth. And the DWC has suspended three more medical providers from participating in California's workers' compensation system, bringing the total number of providers suspended to 245. The most well-known on the new list is Beverly Hills radiologist Ronald Grust and two of his corporations, California Imaging Network Medical Group and Willows Consulting Company. They were convicted by a federal jury of fraud and bribery charges in connection with a massive health care fraud scheme. After a seven-day trial, the jury found Dr. Grust and his companies guilty on all charges facing them, including conspiracy, honest services mail and wire fraud, health care fraud, and travel act violations based upon their years-long bribery and fraud scheme. Dr. Cruz fraudulently billed insurance companies for over $25 million for medical services. His practice, California Imaging Network Medical Group, operated clinics throughout California. Also on the new suspension list is Toros Yarasonian of Encino. He was the co-owner of Maroon, Maroon Ambulance Services and Aaron Krikosherian of Los Angeles was also the manager of the ambulance company. They were convicted in federal court in 2017 of conspiracy to commit health care fraud for their involvement in an illegal scheme of providing unnecessary ambulance transportation services. And in other industry news, one of the many important workers' compensation claims administration tasks is to place accurate reserves for future claims costs, especially in claims that will be open for the life of the claimant. Since the U.S. life expectancy increased each year for several decades, administrators had to consider making higher reserves for lifetime awards as time went on. But that life expectancy trend seems to have reversed. According to preliminary data published by the National Center for Health Statistics, 2017 likely will mark the third straight year of decline in American life expectancy. The new estimates are based on all death records received and processed by NCHS as of April 15. Estimates are presented for 15 leading causes of death, plus estimates for death attributed to drug overdose, falls for persons over age 65, and over firearm deaths, HIV disease, and homicide. Death rates rose for Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, flu, and pneumonia, 
and three other leading causes of death. Fuller data is not yet available for drug overdoses, suicides, or firearm deaths, but partial year statistics in those categories showed continuing increases. Just as important, there was little change in the death rate from the nation's number one killer, heart disease. In the past, steady annual drops in heart disease death rates offset increases in other causes. But 2016 was the second year in a row in the United States life expectancy fell, a rare event that had occurred only twice before in the last century. But there was some good news. The death rate for cancer, the nation's number two killer, continued to drop, and it fell 2% from 2016. Death rates from HIV and blood infections also declined. The heart disease death rate fell too, but only by 0.3%. Experts think the nation's increasing obesity rate is probably a factor in the flattening of heart disease death rates. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.